This is Deep Dish from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the weekly podcast going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, Vice President of Studies at the Council, and today I have with me two guests who are both on the phone and who are leading voices in the discussion of President Trump's executive order banning travel from seven Muslim-majority countries and also on temporarily halting refugees coming into the United States. I have with me Ian Tuttle, who is the Thomas L. Rhodes Fellow at the National Review Institute and an editor at the National Review. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me. And I also have on the line Bob Pape, who's professor of political science at the University of Chicago and who has appeared at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome, Bob. Glad to be here. President Trump signed an executive order that did a couple of things. It halted the admissions of refugees into the United States for 120 days, and then it also uh, stopped travel from to the United States from seven Muslim-majority countries, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Yemen, Sudan, Libya, and Somalia, and, and stopped those entries from those countries for 90 days. You both have written about this issue and taken uh, very different views. Uh, Ian, you and the editors in the National Review wrote a piece called Trump's Order on Refugees, Mostly Right on Substance, Wrong on Rollout. And Bob published a piece titled, Trump is Making ISIS Great Again. And what I want to do uh, with our discussion is really give an opportunity to explore both of your positions uh, on this issue. And Ian, if I could start with you, you make the argument that this executive order does indeed enhance U.S. security. And I was wondering if you could start by uh, sharing with us why you see this as a positive for U.S. security. Sure. Um, so I'm not at all a, um, a uniform fan of the executive order, and we can get into where I think it, it goes awry, because it does in, in significant ways uh, in terms of policy and also in terms of, of politics. But I do think that uh, Trump is responding, uh, perhaps somewhat um, fumblingly, to a real problem. Uh, which is uh, what we've seen abroad for for some time, uh, the threat of jihadists trying to infiltrate the refugee process. We've seen them do it successfully uh, coming into Europe. Uh, we have very, very good uh, evidence that they're trying to do it to come into the United States. Uh, the refugee um, question is also part of uh, the larger immigration question and uh, you know, when we look back at terrorist attacks um, in the United States going back to uh, September 11th, 2001, we see that, uh, you know, we're talking frequently about foreign nationals um, who made it through vetting procedures uh, to get legal visas. And then, you know, in the case of the 9-11 hijackers overstayed their visas um, or sometimes uh, just weren't vetted sufficiently. I think that was the case, if memory serves, um, when it came to the uh, one of the members of the San Bernardino uh, shooting, so there is a there is an issue here, um, and I think it's senseless to pretend otherwise. Again, we can talk about sort of the the urgency of this and whether Trump's way of going about it is it was the the ideal way, um, but he is responding to uh, a real issue, and so. You know, in principle, I don't think that this um, this uh, policy was unreasonable. 
So in in imposing the, this policy and the halts, uh, he also talks about uh, using this time of the temporary bans to undertake a review of admissions procedures, vetting procedures, in order to to make the United States safer. What is it that needs to happen in that in that process so that you would be more comfortable uh, with people coming in from these countries? Well, I think um, a couple things. One, one most particular, we should we should acknowledge the United States and Europe uh, have very different refugee vetting procedures, and and I'm certainly aware of that. And so, and they're also uh, admitting you know, significantly different uh, numbers of, of people. You know, Germany, for instance, is admitting something like a million refugees annually, and the United States is you know, significantly lower uh, than that. Would be fifty thousand under President Trump's uh, cap. Um, but I think one uh, one thing that is significant, and which the United States um, no longer actually uh, actually does is simply follow the law when it comes to, to vetting. Um, you know, there are people trying to get into the country who um, would be easily eliminated under uh, current uh, under vetting procedures if they were properly enforced. You know, it's part of immigration law that we probe uh, extensively to make sure that someone is not subscribing to a quote-unquote uh, you know, totalitarian ideology. This is the language of the law, um, dating back from uh, dating back from the Cold War. That's still on the books. It's a matter of policy that's gone almost entirely unenforced uh, for reasons of you know sensitivity and uh, and at its worst political correctness. Uh, that's not to say it's a foolproof uh, solution by any stretch of the imagination. Jihadists will lie. Uh, but it's a tool we have at our disposal that we've we've sort of easily dispensed with. Um, you know, uh, we we ought to be able to, I think, also look more uh, more carefully at you know where where so many of our refugees are coming from. We're willing to give sort of blanket uh, blanket exemptions or blanket um, approval uh, frequently without just doing the the legwork that's already uh, already required under law. Um, you know, I, I would hope that the evaluation process that the Trump administration goes through will see some of those holes and, and uh, plug them, uh, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, I know there'll be a discussion about some of the points that you made and also some of the points Bob's made will make. Um, but, Bob, you make the argument that this executive order actually makes the United States less safe uh, from terrorism. How do you see that, and why do you come to that conclusion? A um, couple of points. Um, first, uh, America does not have the same problems as Europe, um, and we're not heading in that direction. Um, we weren't under Obama. Um, the best place to see that um, is by looking at the 112 individuals who have been indicted for ISIS-related offenses since March 2014 uh, or carried out um, attacks in the United States in the name of ISIS. Um, those um, 112, and I, and I know this in some depth because uh, my center, the Chicago Project on Security and Terrorism, is going to publish a report called The American Face of ISIS, which will go through this in great detail. Um, uh, those 112 um, paint a very different picture than the picture that Ian painted. 
first of all, um, um, only three of the 112 are refugees. Uh, none of those three are Syrian refugees. Uh, two are refugees uh, from Bosnia in the 1990s. Uh, one is a refugee from Iraq um, from 2012. Um, so this is just a very, very different world. Three uh, here. Uh, second, um, if you look at the uh, um, if you look at the numbers, you'll see that uh, foreign nationals only make up four percent of uh, these hundred and twelve. Um, we are long since past the days where we don't review the um, entry documents of uh, uh, individuals uh, from the Middle East as we did before 9/11. Um, we scrutinize and have been scrutinizing for years and years. Uh, um, those uh, individuals from Middle Eastern countries, um, and in fact, the uh, overwhelming number um, uh, of the uh, 112, um, over 80 percent, are American citizens. Uh, 64 percent are American-born American citizens. Uh, so the picture that Ian painted is just simply grossly out of date. This is not the 1990s. Uh, this is not Europe. It's just a very, very different world. Um, second, the, uh, to treat uh, this um, as uh, we should respond here by wholesale blocking of whole categories of people. Um, uh, and yes, it's true, for now it's just seven Muslim countries, but those seven Muslim countries represent um, nearly 220 million people. Uh, many of those 220 million are our allies in the war against ISIS. Um, and the um, fact is we have more allies in those countries uh, than ISIS has fighters. Um, so to paint them all with such a broad brush is going to push many, many folks into the hands of ISIS who are not there uh, now. Uh, and finally, and perhaps most importantly of all, um, the rhetoric surrounding the Muslim ban and the category itself, the categorization uh, itself, um, fits uh, the worst versions of the jihadi narrative that ISIS and other Islamic groups have been painting uh, for many, many years. And this narrative isn't just empty talk. This is the power of the group. You see, there have been serious attacks um, in. Uh, the United States and in Europe, they all have one thing in common. They are carried out by walk-in volunteers. Uh, the individuals who carried out 9-11, the individuals who carried out Madrid, London, the individuals who carried out Orlando, San Bernardino, these are not individuals uh, brainwashed in madrasas for years and years and years. Uh, these are individuals who are responding to the propaganda, the Islamic narrative that's put out by the group. And ISIS, Al-Qaeda before ISIS, painted a fairly straightforward um, Islamic narrative of the West waging war against Muslims uh, to seize the lands of Muslims, to seize the oil of Muslims. And so uh, for President Trump um, to essentially declare war on whole categories of Muslims, um, this is just playing right into ISIS's hands uh, and I think is dramatically making us less safe today than we were a week ago. So, Ian, Bob laid out a couple of arguments, one about um, the 
that the threat is not coming from the places where the ban takes of, is is aimed, and the uh, the other was this this his argument about uh, um, the the effect of this action on the on the recruiting narrative and the mobilization nar- narrative of ISIS. Um, how do you re- respond to those arguments? Where do you think they're they're right? Where you might agree with them, and and where do you think they they are wrong, and why? Yeah, let me um, let me start with the the question of of refugees and. and um, their involvement in terror, because uh, uh, there's there's one point in there in which I, I agree, which is that um, there's an interesting disjunction between first generation uh, or I sh- or refugees to the United States and um, those who actually many of those who actually perpetrate um, terrorist attacks or have returned overseas to fight with ISIS or with Al Shabaab. Um, I've written about this fairly extensively, but you look at the the Somali refugee community in Minnesota's Twin Cities, um, and you have uh, a very large community, you know, 100,000 or so between the two, but you also have the largest number um, of people who have gone from the United States back overseas to fight for one of a number of designated terrorist groups. And what's what's really interesting in those uh, situations is that uh, almost all the time, it's not refugees themselves, but the children of refugees, uh, you know, first-generation um, uh, Americans. And so when it comes to the refugee question, one of the, the additional considerations that we have to be making is um, in permitting refugees to come into the country, um, are they settling in a way that is accommodating assimilation? Are we figuring out a way that it's not just refugees um, coming into the country and and, and, uh, becoming safe from the threats they faced in their native countries, um, but are we creating the conditions to make sure that the type of tensions and alienations that seem to be driving um, these situations among first-generation Americans who are children of refugees, are we making sure that those con- those conditions don't uh, arise? And I think that that's something that has been left out of our refugee policy. Now, that's larger, obviously, than Donald Trump's executive order, um, but it's something worth keeping in mind. To, to Bob's point about um, playing into to ISIS's narrative, um, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of accuracy there in in, in what he describes, and I think Trump is um, uh, by and large insensitive uh, to the impression that he uh, you know he projects, um, especially uh, you know, to to our nation's enemies, other than you know that he is big and strong and tough. Um, so as far as you know, a recruiting tool. Um, Bob might be uh, might be right on that, and we'll have to, to sort of see how that plays out. Um, the The question, though, remains: Is there a way that Trump can pursue his policy, which I think is, again, as I said earlier, in principle, reasonable, um, and seems to have at least you know electoral results indicating. Uh, seems to have a good deal of support. Is there a way that he can do that, project the image of toughness, forcefulness, strength, uh, et cetera, without playing into that narrative? 
Um, I guess I would say a couple of things uh, in response and maybe in a couple of uh, points that Ian made here. Uh, the one is uh, electoral support. So uh, a lot of commentators um, are focusing on that Trump is fulfilling his campaign promises and he's got 63 million people who voted for him, so why shouldn't he do this? I think it's helpful to remember that when we invaded Iraq in 2003, 70% of the American public supported that war. Uh, well, that's how we did it. That didn't mean it was a good idea. Didn't mean it was a good idea then. And certainly afterwards, most people, including President Trump, don't think that was a good idea. So um, the measure of merit here really can't be just electoral support, because electoral support doesn't mean we're doing the right thing. It just means we're doing what a bunch of people think we should do at the moment. Um, and I think that this is just a very dangerous way to, uh, uh, to go forward. Um, and we've seen this before. The second point I think I'd make is that um, I uh, have no doubt that we need to pay more attention to uh, how it is that specific individuals are being recruited uh, here by ISIS and other overseas terrorist groups. But I just want to point out uh, the stunning thing uh, I just said about the numbers. The numbers of individuals persecuted, uh, per, uh, perp uh, who perpetrated ISIS-related offenses in the last three years is a total of 112. Now, there are 3.3 uh, million uh, Muslims, American Muslims. That means something on the order of one in every 30,000 are in that camp of uh, having committed terrorist offenses. Of course, the number could be a bit more. We don't know. But notice that painting with a broad brush here um, is just wrong. Um, but it's wrong because we depend on those 29,999 uh, to give us help. Um, how do you think the FBI um, is finding out about the people that they prosecute? Uh, part of it's surveillance, to be sure, but part of it um, is getting tips and getting support from the local Muslim community. So I think we go about this business of painting the entire category of Muslims, the 3.3 million, as suspect, uh, when only 1 in 30,000 actually um, have been convicted over the last three years. Uh, this is going to dry, the number of tips just going to dry right up. Um, uh, the number of uh, going into ISIS ants going to go in, into more numbers. It's just a very bad idea. Uh, so I do think we need to uh, take better steps. We need a, uh, but uh, I don't think that uh, we should just be wholesale taking the risk of uh, 10, 20 fold increase in the threat just because Trump won the election and we got to do something. So let's just make it worse. Well, I don't think I, I don't think I said that that would be the sole, sole criterion of, of how we would uh, measure a policy, and I certainly wouldn't want it to be. Uh, we've been very critical of. Of Donald Trump throughout the entire cycle, um, you know, and that was criticism that flew in the face of a whole lot of a whole lot of people. Um, but so, but I do I do take that point. That said, when you're talking about uh, the attacks, you're talking the, the ISIS-related offenses uh, that you're talking about over the past three years. There are also a couple. Other things worth bearing in mind, which is that, one, we're not talking about just crime. We're talking about terrorism. We're talking about a politically motivated and ideologically motivated crime. So, you know, this it's 
it's one thing to say the numbers are small. On the other hand, it's you're, you're talking about um, a very specific type of crime that's, that has a very particular intent uh, that's unique compared to the whole other range of, of you know, offenses uh, prosecutable on our books. The other thing that strikes me is that we need to be cognizant of the fact that while police are, are certainly um, getting tips from the Muslim community and their, their vital uh, channels of, of information and intelligence that we need to uh, be maintaining, uh, it's also true that uh, there's, there's significant sheltering going on, and we know this. You know, when you look at the, the polled attitudes of Muslims in the United States, you, know, you find um, uh, you find 50 percent in favor of <clears throat> in favor of um, beheadings for certain crimes. You find, uh, I believe, it's four in ten supportive of suicide bombing. That's Pew Research inside the United States. I'm not saying that that merits you know smearing a whole group. I'm certainly not intending to do that, and I would never do that. But I think we ought to recognize. Um, that we're not talking about 100, you know, uh, slightly over 100 people that are um, ideological in isolation. And part of part of what forms these, you know, loose networks of supporters, however small they may be. And again, I think this is, I do agree with Bob that this is a very small number. Uh, but what permits those loose sort of networks to form um, are our immigration procedures at you know, at the the very earliest point. Um, I think that it's really helpful to have these conversations because I think that um, we don't really disagree a lot on the numbers uh, here. So I think the the points that Ian are making, just some of the facts here, notice that there's quite a bit of agreement on the facts. But I think that what the numbers that Ian just pointed out about, let's say that, that uh, uh, a significant percentage of um, uh, American Muslims think that uh, suicide bombing might be justified under some circumstances. What that means is things could get dramatically worse uh, with the wrong policies. Um, and I think that uh, we're missing that um, the threat is not already at a maximum. The threat is just teeny tiny compared to what it could really be. Um, and a good way to think about this, I think, is uh, to look at how our American military handles uh, counterinsurgency operations. Um, there are some folks uh, in the military, a minority, who think we should be tough and we should get in there and, and, and kick butt, and that's the way to get intelligence. Uh, the vast majority, however, and these have been the successful majority, um, believe in a hearts and minds approach. This was General Petraeus's approach uh, uh, in uh, Iraq in 2008 and 2009, which turned out to be tremendously successful. The whole idea there uh, was not to declare the local uh, uh, Muslims uh, all enemies here, although many could be tilted into becoming enemies. Uh, the idea was to work with them. The idea was to cooperate with them, uh, similar to how a lot of our FBI, our field, local field offices that I know quite closely because I've gone to talk to them, work very closely with CARE and other uh, uh, local grassroots Muslim leaders because they see the value of a hearts and minds approach. Um, and I think that um, this is just uh, being dramatically thrown out the window here uh, by the idea that we should take uh, 
uh, a heavy-handed, mailed-fist approach, and that's somehow better. Um, I agree with Ian that um, this problem could get a lot worse, and the policies that Trump is, uh, President Trump is currently pursuing um, is uh, dramatically increasing the likelihood it will get worse. I agree with Bob uh, in, in a lot of that. And, you know, while I've said I, I support Trump's policy generally in, in, in the principle of it and the threat it's trying to, to ameliorate, um, what you did see here was complete amateurishness uh, from this White House in in executing the policy, uh, not going through the proper legal channels to to vet it. Uh, ironically enough, um, you know, pushing forward with um, a, a really sort of definitive, um, you know, large scale plan, um, mostly made up by political advisors, not communicating with. Customs officials and De- Department of Homeland Security officials and the rest who would be tasked with, with actually carrying out um, this order is just rank uh, incompetence. And so, you know, the merits of the policy um, are are one thing. The execution, though, is was so um, was so fumbled uh, that I think it you know it really hamstrung. Um, what good this this policy might have done. I think it's important to to keep in mind, unfortunately. And I think on that we can agree. There's there's no doubt that if you were going to uh, tighten up our immigration controls, um, you would um, spend at least a few weeks uh, consulting uh, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense. Um, You would uh, work very closely uh, with some of our key uh, embassies, uh, and so that you would minimize uh, as much as possible uh, some of the obvious uh, negative reactions to just simply signing an order at 4.42 p.m. on Friday and instantly having to have uh, people in midair frozen out of the United States with all kinds of problems, not the least of which, by the way, when some of those people are sent back home, remember, these are folks who have been working with us, often with our military, uh, they don't just go back and sit there. Some of them are now at risk of their lives, which, again, is a moral problem, and it's just going to be awfully hard to be taking the risk to work with Americans in the future. As we close this conversation, I want to ask uh, one, co- one question to both of you, which is, in this issue of keeping America safe from terrorism, what, what should we be doing? What is the most important thing for us to do? Uh, the most important thing um, that we should be doing is um, uh, there's, there's really two things, I would say, Brian. Uh, one is uh, the, the more we need new research uh, to really drill down into uh, this black swan problem we have in the United States. Uh, we don't have a problem uh, with, that is afflicting uh, even 98% of all American Muslims. Uh, we, are a fic- we are seeing a problem with a teeny tiny fraction. And so uh, that's why, um, uh, you, you, uh, you, as you know, Brian, I'm carrying out research with Jean Decidi where we're brain scanning uh, individuals in the Chicagoland area as they watch ISIS-related uh, propaganda to really try uh, to break ground to get new uh, policies. Uh, in the meantime, um, I think the uh, most important thing to do um, is actually to continue the decimation of uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria 
um, that has been occurring over the last two years. Um, I think maybe it's uh, difficult for President Trump to uh, come to see that over the last two years, um, uh, ISIS has been rolled back 50% of its territory in Iraq, uh, about a third in Syria. And I think that should just be our number one focus here over the next year, uh, certainly not rallying uh, Muslims uh, to ISIS's side and taking away uh, the Iraqi Syrian Kurds and others who are working with us. I, I agree with Bob on, on the on-the-ground um, you know, necessities overseas and, and <clears throat> you know, from a, uh, a fairly hawkish standpoint. Um, I think that you know much more can be done to to aid um, allies who are actually fighting these battles um, in that area. I think that's key and, and was uh, it was an opportunity left um, unexploited during the Obama administration. I would add that I think uh, one of one of the complaints commonly heard from uh, folks in the intelligence community during uh, the Obama years was that there had been a significant reduction in human intelligence and a, 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 an up uh, upscaling of the importance of um, basically uh, drones and and technological intelligence to get us um, you know the information that we needed and that's just not sufficient um, so uh, a smart um, intelligence policy under uh, Donald Trump will uh, try to um, build back up the human intelligence uh, capital that was uh, sort of lost over the past several years. Well, Ian and Bob, I want to thank you both for being on the show today. One of the things I really appreciate about this conversation is since the executive order happened, there has been a, a lot of shouting about the policy, and in some ways that's understandable in that what is at stake is the safety of the American people. People feel very passionately about that, and I think what you've allowed us to do today is to unpack the arguments and understand the differences of views. Clearly, one of the things that comes out of this conversation is that U.S. policies have consequences and that um, all of us need to think about and reflect on the various arguments to be able to determine uh, which consequences we think are going to be most likely. Uh, this is a conversation that will certainly continue and uh, look forward to having a chance to talk to you in the future on this. So thanks, uh, Bob and Ian, so much for being on today. Absolutely. Delighted to be part of it. Thank you very much. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please share this episode with friends or family members who might enjoy it. You can find our show on iTunes under Deep Dish and also on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll return next week with another slice of Deep Dish. <laughs>